Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network. Featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, Protecting Project Pulp, and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello, and welcome to show 367. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Are you all sorted? Are you all sorted? I hope you are. Yes, we are, as you know. Yes, done lots of it. <laughs> it's coming up to Christmas. By God, man, the kids are climbing off the walls. Daughter's 18 there now, still climbing off the walls. But, wow, looking forward to it so much. I have got seven days off. Then I'm actually working over the Christmas. I've got five days on over Christmas and then five days off over the new year. We kind of work it there now. So every year, because I work shifts, every year I've, we've now got like, either you can either have the five, or you do, you have the five at Christmas off or the five at New Year, and it's like a rota thing there. So it's not too bad. And I've actually, I've spent the morning with the, everyone, you know, opening presents and everything like that. Then off to work and then back. Just when it's getting, you know, a little bit hectic <laughs> off to work. You know, oh, I'm sorry, love. Yeah, I've got to go. Got to go, kids. See you later. Woohoo! <laughs> so, I'll tell you what's coming to this show. First up, we have short fiction cycles by Stephen V. Ramy. Then we have Portrait Planet, Diane Searson. She is doing Portrait Planet number 14, which is the Elgin Award Showcase Part 1. There's another one coming as well. Then we have the main fiction, which is Not Smart, Not Clever by E. Saxe. And that's narrated by Elizabeth Amagus. So that is all coming into today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. Straight away then, we'll get into the short fiction Cycles by Stephen V. Ramy. Stephen V. Ramy is American author of contemporary and speculative fiction. His short stories, flash fictions have appeared in dozens of places. From micro-literature, Prick of the Spindle, to daily science fiction and Beneath the Skies. His debut collection, Glass Animals, is available from Pure Slush Books. Find them at stephenvramy.com. This story is narrated by the one, the only, Amy H. Sturgis. That's Doctor to you, by the way. Cycles. The butterflies filling the greeting bay were intended to instill a sense of lightness and peace. Purser Hardy Dickens heard only the incessant tapping of metalloid bodies against metalloid walls, a reminder of the endless droning of days of his last hundred or so years of life aboard the interplanetary love ship. He straightened his lapels and fixed a stolid grin onto his face, Company-paid rejuve treatments had kept his body fit, but his soul had been leaking into the void for (laughs) decades. This would be his final voyage. 
He'd said that before, but this time he meant it. He would opt off ship at Saturn Station or maybe the Uranus flyby. His company debt would be settled by then, and the lack of contemporary medical facilities at the outposts would mean a quick enough end, a few years at most. Whatever holdings he left behind could be distributed to his great, 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 great grandchildren, if anyone could find them. He had long ago lost track of family. The bay door began its rumbling ascent. Butterflies whooshed outward like gas molecules through a breach. A single one landed on his sleeve, blue and black patterned wings, pulsing, open, closed, open. Such a fragile, useless creature. Much like a purser on a modern cruise ship, there was no need for money handling, leaving him to serve as a mere cheerleader for the passengers. He cupped his hand above the butterfly, not quite touching the glistening antennae protruding from its wedge shaped head. Light pulsed their length and cadence with the wings, indicating the transmitter within the creature was functional. They would lose between one and five percent of their colorful cargo. He had done his stint on the administration deck and knew the delicate balance between a showy display and out of pocket expenditure. Would this little butterfly be among the losses? Or would the ship's recall signal bring it home? His heart stuttered as the butterfly leaped, brushing his hand ever so gently. He flexed his fingers, closed, open, closed. Tears suddenly steamed behind his eyes. Maybe life felt empty because he wanted it to be. And if he could want that, well, couldn't he want something else? A truer smile tested his lips. His eyes sought his butterfly among the evaporating masses. I hope you return. Still smiling, he stepped forward, spreading his arms wide to greet the passengers. <laughs> There you go, Stephen. Amy, what can I say? Big, big thank you. Lovely little kind of oh, short as out story. I think that was maybe two minutes long. Thank you so much. Good one there, Jeremy, picking that story. Thank you very much. Next up is the main fiction, and it is Not Smart, Not Clever by E. Saxy. E. Saxy is a queer Londoner and fan of floral flavoured chocolate, whose work has appeared in Apex, Apex Hold Fast, Daily Science Fiction, and Spacious Moonshots, and anthologies inclu including The Lowest Heaven and Pandemonium, The Rite of Spring. Story is narrated by Elizabeth Amicus, Eva Amicus, who we've had on, you know, loads of times now, and it's just lovely to hear her voice. She is a nomadic screenwriter, director, based, as you know, in Los Angeles and Seattle. A first feature film due for release in 2015, and she's currently writing the pilot for a new show by Zombie, Zombie Orpheus Entertainment. She regular makes, regularly makes terrible life choices in the pursuit of stories and is very bad at finding time to work on a website. You can follow her exploits at Twitter at Abby Amicus. Abby, where's that? Iba Amicus. There you go. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Not Smart, Not Clever by E. Sexy. The lecture hall I'm trying to enter holds 300, but the security doors admit only two people at a time. Smart. I wait with the gang, Aisha, Barb, and Zach, in the underground atrium. Lynn, Aisha asks me, you totally don't have to tell me, but are you on brain wreck? No. I mean, not yet, anyway. I am, Aisha admits. The gang gasps. Aisha is normally squeaky clean. I didn't cheat. I was on face wreck, Aisha explains. But then I was writing my decadence essay, and the face wreck didn't know who I was because I was wearing a hat, so the department put me on brain wreck too. She frowns. It's not fair. It was my thinking hat. The gang coos. Aisha is adorable. The gang were thrown together in a hall of residence in their first year of university. Aisha is sweet, Barb is melodramatic, and Zach is nerdy. 
Not well-suited, they nevertheless became fiercely loyal and emotionally pop-bound. Now, in their second year, they're renting a house together. I'm shy. I'm not one of the gang. Yet, I'm Zach's girlfriend. What do they do if you fail brain wreck? Aisha asks. They've got truth drugs, says Barb. This is a peril of studying literature. Scientific illiteracy. I don't tell them that truth drugs don't work. I don't want a reputation for being a know-it-all. We don't discuss the subject we're studying. Maybe it's too personal, or too easy to say something clueless. So we keep talking about plagiarism, probation, punishment. A vision of a grubby grail hovers before us. Undetectable plagiarism. My mate said his friends like crack the code, Zach tells us. He's not doing any work, just twiddling his thumbs, and he's going to stroll out of here with a first. Aisha reminds everyone that plagiarism is foul and most unnatural. I say something bland about fear and failure. Barb bellows at me. You don't have to worry about failing, you swat. Then backpedals. You're totally not a swat, sorry. My family's Chinese, and perhaps Barb doesn't want to stereotype me. But it's fair enough. I'm pretty swatty. I don't talk about it, but the girls have guessed that I live with my parents, and they're academically pushy. Complaints about how much everyone is paying in fees, how much everyone is working, how much everyone is expected to write, are passed up and down the queue like a bag of crisps. What did you get for the decadence essay, Lynn? asks Aisha. I drop my head. Zach hugs me. We've reached the card slots and cameras of the security doors. Don't worry about it, Lynn, Barb says. Decadence is the least of our fucking problems. She swipes her card to and fro, fast as a hummingbird. We all shove through the doors together. Barb issues a significant invitation. You should come to the club sandwich of the Union with us. It's horrible. Whenever I pass the Union, it smells of bleach, beer, and vomit. I totally would, I say. But I've always got a lecture the next day, first thing. Swat! I scan the rows of the lecture theater. I can see 20 women who look a bit like me. Six of us have the same hairstyle. A few of them are wearing gold eyeshadow. I might try that. I tend to copy people. I wish I could be more original, but it feels risky. Zach and I sit next to one another, and our knees touch as Zach gets out his department-issued device, logs on, and thumbprints it onto his notes. I crack open my paper notebook, and he smiles, because I'm old-fashioned. My ex-boyfriend, Linton, became entranced by plagiarism. He was writing a doctorate on a handful of black American writers and their intertextual influences. Doctorates are very specific, but they need momentum to get going, so you generalize a little, add a slug of confirmation bias, so you can believe you've got something huge. Linton began to see intertextuality everywhere. Anything new grew out of revision, transformation, and theft. We weren't just standing on the shoulders of giants. The giants threw us in the air, and we hauled them up with us. He told me when we met, we dance with giants in the air, man. I probably encourage the exaggeration. Relationships need momentum to get going, too. Around the same time, Linton's university made him sign a four-page document stating that he wouldn't plagiarize. It took him a week to reason himself into it. He got philosophical, and then incredulous, and then paranoid, and then did them all again drunk. He argued it out with his tutor, and his tutor said, Yes, but Linton, seriously. He found that the text of the anti-plagiarism document had been copied directly from another institution's anti-plagiarism agreement and rolled on his bedroom floor with hysteria. But he signed it. Then the bad faith aided him. He started to talk a lot about undetectable plagiarism. First, he was going to write software that would generate essays. It's a problem crying out for a smart solution. You know what smart is? I'm smart. No, you're clever. Smart is when you have huge data sets and a bit of processing power. You ask a question, the smart thing pulls in the data and filters it and personalizes the output. Like you ask, where can I buy? Dinner for my girlfriend who helped me with my thesis today? Yeah, dinner. The smart thing checks restaurants, location menus, reviews. Now, there are databases full of essays, articles. If I create something smart, it can pull them in and answer an essay question. Is Hamlet mad isn't exactly the same as can I have extra mozzarella. In some ways, it's identical. 
Linton programmed a simple Markov bot. He fed it essays, and the bot learned the rules. Then he asked it to turn out new essays, unoriginal but unique. The new essays were like a child babbling down a crackly phone line. Linton swore and started again. Later that day, I hear Aisha crying in her room. She can't find any relevant material for her essay, and the deadline's at midnight. I offer to help her. Would you really? It'll take an hour. I can teach you how to use the databases. Oh, I couldn't. That wouldn't be fair. You got your own work. Buy me a pint at Club Sandwich sometime. Aisha plugs in her dedicated device. An oval light shines up at her. The face wreck. She isn't wearing her thinking hat this time. I stay away from the camera so as not to confuse it and risk her reputation. She sticks two cheap sensor suckers to her temple, embarrassed, and tucks the wires into her cardigan. Brain wreck. I'd not seen it in action before. I talk her through the big databases in our subject area, the differences between them. I set her some test exercises and make her a cup of tea while she completes them. Then, on to the fun part. Refining search terms, pinning down page numbers, whittling irrelevancies. At the end of it, it's taken two hours, and we have six good articles, and she knows how to do it for herself next time. You're so clever. You're so clever, she says, correctly. Well, I'm smart. Just, you know, ask if you need anything else. You're so kind. She sounds uncertain, as though I'm trespassing on her territory. I want to reassure her. I'm shy and swatty, but I'm not really sweet. She can keep sweet, and she doesn't know how kind I'm being. Linton studied the leading text-matching service. It besmirched the white innocent page of the essay by highlighting unauthorized quotes, each separate source in a different color. A plagiarized essay would light up like a Christmas tree. Linton made a program which turned all the E's in an essay into something that looked like an E, but wasn't, so the text-matching service couldn't recognize it. The service became a blustering idiot. Four score years and ten, spelled with threes, never heard of it. I have a dream. Essays treated with Linton's program had a zero percent match, were white as snow. But that's just as suspicious as a hundred percent match, Linton admitted. Linton made a synonym swapper. He told it that the plot of the sensation novel, in essence, owes much to the gothic novel. It told him that the scam of the funky tingle, in pith, is in hawk to the barbaric quirky. It sounds good, yeah? It sounds like an encyclopedia with a head injury. It's getting there. Linton tried to teach code to write like people, like hungover, distracted, overworked amateurs, like students. Linton realized he was trying to simultaneously solve all the major problems of language and computing and creativity to invent a product he could never sell. My phone wakes me at just past midnight, and I can't remember which scruffy room I'm in. The poster of Tim Berners-Lee's Benign Eyes, This is for Everyone, doesn't narrow it down too much. I slap the phone to silence it, and when my disorientation passes, I slip out from under Zach's arm to talk in the hallway. Barb is phoning me, crying, from the library. The results from her last essay were released onto her device at 0000. The mark isn't what she wanted. It'll be on my transcript forever! I'll get suspended! I soothe. It's all right for you. You're going to get a first. She wails for a bit. Starve in a gutter. Go on the game. I interrupt. If you come home and sleep now, I'll talk to your tutor with you tomorrow. Swear? Print me off a copy of the version you submitted and put it under Zach's door. And don't write anything about it on your device. No messages, no notes, okay? See you at eight in the kitchen. She is snottily grateful. I return to bed. What was that? Zach asks, wrapping his skinny arms around me. Barb. Didn't get the grade she needed on modernism. You're the good deed fairy. You are, he says, rambling, half awake. I feel his arms slacken in sleep. I stay awake, waiting for Barb to slide the essay under the door. I build the case for the defense. Barb swipes us into the tower, and we climb the concrete steps. I review my longhand pencil notes. She fiddles with her device. I want to remind her not to drop it. It's a nightmare to get the department to replace them. We have a ten o'clock appointment with her tutor. 
Barb has drawn heavy lines around her big eyes. She better not use her wiles on him. What are you going to tell him, I ask? She starts her panic breathing, but I grip her arm, and she says, That I did read a lot of critical material, and I drew pretty heavily on one source. Who? Mitchell, 1980, but I didn't understand how to reference it. Okay. And don't ask him to change the grade. But that's what I need! Yeah, but it's rude to ask. Just say, I'm worried about getting into trouble. That means, change my grade. He's going to flay me! That is the least of your fucking problems, I tell her. She looks shocked, and I remember that I don't usually swear in front of her. I reach past her and knock on the office door. I only catch a glimpse of him as she enters, a young man in corduroy, elbow on knees, and fingers steepled, playing at being an academic. The name on the door isn't his. He's a PhD student, borrowing the office. This year is the first time he's taught. I'm not psychic. This is all public information, if you cross-reference. He's undertrained and underpaid and scared that he hasn't got it right. Maybe the wiles would work. I'm doomed for a certain term to walk the corridor and eavesdrop. I move far enough away from the door that they won't hear me speaking, and I listen in through Barb's microphone. He has a soothing voice, impersonating other people who have taught him. But Barbara, it's a very respectable grade. I'm worried about getting into trouble, Barb says, shrill in my ear. When he speaks, why would you be worried? I know she's infected him with her panic. He's afraid he's failed to spot something, and there will be a referral. A process. Tell him about Mitchell, I say in her earpiece. She tells him. Tell him you put it in your bibliography. I did put it in the bibliography! Barb retorts, a large, defensive non-sequitur. Which is even better. No tutor wants to deal with a mental health crisis. Barbara phrases herself. I mean, I did put it in the bibliography, but I didn't know how to reference it properly. The tutor sighs with relief and spends ten minutes discussing ways of acknowledging sources. He's pretty good. I jot some of his tips in my notebook. Make sure he's going to change the grade, I remind Barb. You're still worried. I'm still worried that I'm going to get into trouble. It's a fine grade. It won't affect. Mention probation, I prompt. I'll go on probation, and they'll make me work in the cells, and I can't. I'm claustrophobic. The cells? I mean, the supported learning unit. Oh, I see. I'm not sure whether I can actually... I want to barge the door open and show him. I have to instruct him through Barb. Tell him your friend had his grades changed. Double puppetry. I work Barb. She works the tutor. My friend's tutor put something... Hang on. He wrote, post-tutorial grade adjustment on the... What? The online feed... The online feedback sheet. She dips in and out of fluency, sounding like she's possessed. I think, I can't keep doing this. As soon as the procedure's complete, I yank Barb out of my ear and leave her to say her own goodbyes. Barb catches me on the stairs. Why did you give me a fucking A essay anyway? You wanted better grades. I wanted a C plus. Maybe a B. That single A, in amongst Barb's C's and D's, would have triggered an avalanche of new anti-plagiarism measures. Hopefully, we've averted that. It was a B minus at best. Your tutor's a soft marker. Doesn't want his students crying all over him. She's glaring at me, but she still needs me. We have a pre-existing appointment that evening because she owes the department an essay on psychoanalysts in contemporary women's fiction. And it's fine. I don't like her either. The ones I don't like, I do everything for them. I run all the searches and don't show them how to use the databases. I steal their style and I tidy their grammar, but I don't tell them what a comma splice is or how to use a semicolon. They bob along. Sometimes they think what I do for them looks easy and they try to write something of their own. Their grades dip down, and they come back to me, begging. But their arrogance, their attempts to break away, keep them on the borderline between passing and failing. In their final year around Easter, they realize everything hangs on their dissertation. They just can't risk doing it themselves. And by then, nobody else knows their style. By then, I am their style. And I fleece them. If you've paid so much in fees, 
how much more would you pay to not fail your entire degree? It's not entirely personal. I like Aisha, but it helps to have a lot of goodwill in my cover house. I dislike Barb, but it also helps to have someone in my cover house who's in as deep as possible. Not handy tips for the promise of a pint. The full service. Barb is still glaring at me when we settle in her room for the evening's work. I have pages of handwritten preparatory notes. Never type anything. Never use a device. Never leave a trail. Electronic documents barely exist, but they never stop barely existing. The login takes forever. Password and thumbprint and the luminous face. Suckers on her temple like extra nipples and more passwords and a voice check. It's measuring my stress levels, isn't it? How should I be? Should I be calm or terrified or... She's nervous because she's cheating. She's calm because I'm going to write her impeccable C-plus essay. She's nervous because she's not sure if she's nervous enough. It doesn't stress test. Of course it does. Doesn't it? How would they know how stressed you're supposed to be? I imagine complex charts with variables for parental income, bar job, caffeine, and tranquilizers with a slider to adjust for how close to the deadline the student has started typing. It's checking your brain activity. Oh god, it'll know. It's not that sensitive. We'll be fine. I'll explain it bit by bit. You'll write an essay plan, then I dictate the essay. She frowns. She wants it to be over quicker. It'll be useful if you understand the argument, in case they pull you in for a viva. They won't, will they? They'll ask to see your essay plan first. But they viva 5% of second-year essays. Barb looks sick, so I give her a pep talk. This way, you understand what you're writing about. Which is good, because we want you to learn, not just get the degree, don't we? A little humor here. The brain wreck is incredibly crude, and my precautions should fool it utterly. Its outputs look like crayon drawings. The detection tech always fails. And sometimes, I think it fails, because it's striving for the impossible. The philosophical. A sniffer dog, or an honest gumshoe, would ask, Are there phrases which match other sources? Was this file originally created eight years ago in the wrong country? Simple things. Detectors ask impossible things. What does a lie sound like? How does an honest man breathe? They want to photograph the shadow as it falls across the soul. I've reread one of Barb's essays to catch her style. I'll drop in furthermore every page, weave in some multi-sub-clause sentences deliberately. But most of my imitation is intuitive artistry. I take on her crooked way of thinking, and her writing comes naturally to me. I consult my notes. Okay, so, the Phantom is psychoanalysis. The Phantom comes back, but he doesn't want to set things right. He just wants to continue a cover-up. I could write a better piece. I don't build an elegant argument, stack up unique evidence, deliver a killer punch. It's only a second-year essay, and it can't be higher than a C+. I wish I could write more for the final-year students, but I can only write for the modules which are taught through large lectures. I'd be spotted in a small seminar discussion, despite my boring hair and my boring clothes. The polite term for what I do is ghostwriting. Sometimes I'm ghostly. When I creep into lecture theaters, when I need someone to swipe me in and out of buildings to pick up their device, to type for me, as though I can't touch objects. When the lecturer says... Any questions? And I'm bursting with questions, but I can't have a voice. When I see my face reflected in the screen of someone else's device, and I pull away before the face wreck can catch me. But the writing itself doesn't make me feel like a ghost. I'm shaping, knitting, hacking, building, and never more alive. If there's a ghost in me, it's my conscience, which is undetectable by current tech. Suddenly, Barb cries out, I peer over at the screen of her device. Another window is opened, an image in moody blues with splats of mustard yellow. A blue figure solidifies out of the general fog, and another shrinks back and melts away. At the foot of the screen lie two twitching red blots. I jump away from the screen and scramble towards the window. I wrench it open and Barb is yelling, terrified, and springs up after me, but is tethered to her device by her brain wires and drags it halfway across the room. I wave my hands to keep her away from me. I lean out of the window as far as I can, sitting on the sill, out in the cold air, 
away from the device. Because that screen, which I shouldn't have seen, was a combination of heart monitoring and thermal imaging. I didn't know the devices could do such a thing. I signaled to Barb, hand over my mouth, pointing to the floor. Sit down. Shut up. She scowls. She points at me, then makes two of her fingers run like little legs across her other palm and over the edge, pedaling in midair. She thought I was going to jump out the window. I don't let myself laugh in case the device is audio recording. I tell her with gestures to put the earpiece back in. I can whisper the rest through my phone from here on the windowsill. It'll be awkward and annoying, and my arse hurts already from balancing. When we're done, Barb pulls the sweaty suckers off her head, and I hobble out the door before she can speak. And Aisha is haunting the hallways, and she calls after me. I know what you'd do. I heard you and Barb talking about it. The sound insulation in student houses is terrible. She's shaking with indignation. Maybe she'll try to throw me out of the house. You need to write my Victorian essay for me. Or I'll report you. Sweet little Aisha. The worm turns. She'd been nervous lately, and her perfectionism drags her grades down. I mentally review my portfolio. I'm running some students at another college, across town. They bring enough money for me to live on. But it would be a shame to lose Barb, and the other students at this university, before they mature. Before the big payoff from their dissertation next year. I'll write it, but you need to pay me. You're a cheat. And you're a blackmailer. Except I'm not going to write for free, so you're not even a successful blackmailer. I'm amused because it reminds me of an old joke. We've already established what kind of women we are. Now we're just haggling. That's different. How the fuck is it different? She looks more shocked at my swearing than the ghostwriting. I've been a good, shy swat. I try reasoning. Let's start again. You don't want the person who writes your coursework to be pissed off at you. That's just fuck-witted, I think, but I keep it clean. That's handing me a weapon. You couldn't report me. They'd kick you out as well. Kick me out of where? The university. Bless you. I'm not a student here. We've known each other for a year. Practically lived together for six months. She counters surprisingly quick. Well, wherever you're studying, I'll tell them. They'll kick you out. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The solipsism of youngsters protects me all the time. But sometimes, it's staggering. Knowing it means the loss of the whole house, I say, Aisha, I'm not a student. I haven't been a student for years. I duck into Zach's room while she's still blinking. Linton got bitter. Academia was a pyramid-selling scheme. 
we'd polished our PhDs, churned out scholarly articles which nobody read, and taught undergraduates for minimum wage. But there weren't any jobs for us. I had a couple of interviews for lectureships, but possibly because I looked so young, nobody took me seriously. Linton would wake in the middle of the night, gripped by new ways to plagiarize. He stopped thinking of selling his solutions and planned to give them away for free. The keys to the ivy tower. Meanwhile, I marked hundreds of essays in which the stolen sections stood out like dolmen on a dull landscape. I stopped listening to Linton because it seemed simple to me. The most rigorous tech couldn't beat slippery, dishonest flesh. But the most eloquent, creative tech couldn't persuade a human marker either. It was a stalemate. To write a convincingly fake essay, you'd need to be human and on the ground. Attend the lectures, collect the handouts, read the lecturer's favorite sources. Remind yourself how students thought and sounded. You'd have to spend time with them. But that would be easy. Their social circles were passionate, yet weirdly permeable. In fact, if you hooked up with one of them, you'd have an instant sample group. Linton's mania progressed so far that when his final submission deadline arrived, he had nothing to submit. I had to write his thesis. I wrote it for him, at first, standing over him, questioning him, kept him talking and typing. When he flagged, I wrote it for him. We worked, night and day, for a fortnight, and then parted. He was rotten, or he wouldn't have let me do it. Our relationship was rotten, and I had to end it. I don't mean to duck the blame, but I still can't decide. Was I already rotten, or I wouldn't have done it? Or did I, during that fortnight, living a double life over double-length days, bend too far and become rather more flexible than before? You could alter the student's genetic code, Linton woke to tell me one day in that endless fortnight. Shut up. You could make them fluoresce if their stress levels reached a certain point. Go to sleep. Some of us have to write your thesis in the morning. Turn them into human lie detectors. You could switch off the lights in a lecture theater, shout, who's been cheating, and boom, pull in all the glowing students. Hang on, isn't that a detection idea? I asked. Concealing plagiarism and detecting it went hand in hand. Linton had been watching the detectives so he could design his dodges. When his fascination became all-consuming, he forgot which side he was on and just marveled at the fight. After he passed his Viva, after we broke up, Linton got a job with one of the biggest plagiarism detection companies. He writes impeccably original copy for their publicity. When I got my own doctorate, I went into the plagiarism business as well. I didn't have a vendetta, like Linton. I just wanted to keep learning and writing. And if there was nobody who wanted to read my ideas, there certainly were people who wanted to buy them. I'm smart. I have a small, high-speed processor and access to huge datasets. I can pull in information, quickly filter it, and tailor my outputs. But I'm also clever. Students approach me warily, broaching the subject outside the library, and they always think there's a simple solution. A magic formula. A cloak of invisibility. Managing their disappointment became part of my job. Breaking it to them gently that the only way to write an essay is to write an essay. Zack is sitting with his back to me, so it takes me a moment to see that he's unpacking my bag. He's heard me arguing with Aisha. He's looking for evidence. Clever. He's laid all the faces out on the bed, side by side. And of course they look creepy, like a decapitated choir. Which is unfair, because they're purely pragmatic. The face wreck is indeed stupid, and I can pop on a mask and pass as one of my clients long enough to type their essay for them. The faces are just color photocopies with pieces of elastic, not weird rubber masks or anything. There's a trio of students from China. They pay huge fees. They're not used to this country's referencing conventions, and nobody's got the time to explain it to them. There are four incredibly posh, but not very literate, finalists from the home countries. A couple of mature students. Each name is written in pencil on the back of its face. You've just been lying to me forever, Zach says. I don't say. No, it only feels like forever because you're what, 19? I'm sick of being Mr. Chips and Mrs. Robinson. The truth is, students are so similar to one another, they might as well have been cut and pasted. Someone is always sweet, and someone is always melodramatic, and someone is always nerdy. I can always half live in a student house with them, retreating to Linton's spare room whenever I need to, 
because he'll owe me forever. I can pick up enough words, clothes, gestures to blend in. And I can pick up the kind, nerdy boy who's pleased to be picked, who believes I live with my strict parents who he can never meet. I'm a good girlfriend, and I'm fond of Zach. I've been fond of all my cover boys. I have sympathy for them, for all of them, paying so much to get a leg up at a broken ladder with unemployment waiting for them at the top. He looks at me with disgust, though, and my patience for that is limited. How can you do it? It's only plagiarism. Two-thirds of his housemates have asked me to help them cheat. None of us are monsters. We're symptoms of a sick system. And then his face crinkles up, as much as those super young faces can crinkle. And he says, I liked you. He's angry about our relationship, not my job. That's fair enough. I was pretty despicable. He says, How old are you? Which they almost always ask and which is the least of their fucking problems. There you go. Again, don't forget, copyright is E-Saxy. Thank you very much. And Iba, what a lovely narration. Again, thank you. Come on, thank you enough for doing all these narrations. It's just lovely. Thank you so much. So finally, we have our very own Diane Severson. With Poetry, Pla- Poetry Planet number 14, which is the Elgin, like I say, the Elgin Award Showcase Part 1. And Diane says she's going to try and get that second one over as well. So, Diane. Hello, ciao, salut, hello and hola. And welcome to Poetry Planet. I'm your guide, Diane Severson. I hope you're just a bit tired of holiday cheer and in need of a break, because award season is over and I'm scrambling to get all of these trips to Poetry Planet's Awardland and Contestville documented. The SFPA gives its three awards annually. The Dwarf Stars Award. You heard the winning in placing poetry recently in Starship Sofa episode number 363 the Reisling Award for Best Long and Best Short Poem of the Year, and the Elgin Award. The association also sponsors a poetry contest most years. Today's field trip is to the Elgin Award Museum. The Reisling Award Showcase and the 2014 Contest Showcase will follow, eventually. The Elgin Award, named for the association's founder, Suzette Hayden Elgin, is given to the Best Poetry Collection in two categories— chapbook for 40 pages of poetry or less, and full-length collection. I'm going to split our sojourn among the best poems of the Elgin Award into two parts. There's just too much good poetry, and I'd hate to cut any of it so that this segment stays under 30 minutes. Today, you'll just hear about the winning and placing full-length collections and a selection of poems from them. So, without further ado... The winner of the award for Best Full-Length Collection is Demonstra by Brian Tawora. The blurb from the book says, In the depths half-hidden under still waters await strange and vicious creatures. Cthulhu, Godzilla, and Nagas mingle in Demonstra, a speculative poem collection which assembles 20 years of work by Brian Tawora. Demonstra is a book of things glimpsed out of the corner of the eye, It is about a reality that can never fully be demonstrated, authenticated, dissected, for certain visions always remain in shadows. Brian Tawara is a Lao-American writer and member of the Horror Writers Association and the Science Fiction Poetry Association. His work appears internationally, including In Smith's Free Press, Tales of the Unanticipated, Astro Poetica, and Mad Poets of Terra. He is the author of several books of speculative poetry, including On the Other Side of the Eye, Barrow, and Demonstra, which is his most recent. When trying to decide which poems to read for you, I naturally consult the poet. Brian gave me a few choices and gave compelling information about them. He said, Destroy All Monsters captures many of the key themes of Demonstra, especially in light of the recent kaiju movies like Pacific Rim, Monsters, and Godzilla. 
Because Demonstra is heavily informed by the Lovecraftian mythos, seen through a Lao American lens, the two standouts are typically either the Deep Ones or Fragments of a Dream of Atlantean Yellows. So those are the ones I will read. Destroy All Monsters From Demonstra by Brian Tawara Quote, Monsters are tragic beings. They are born too tall, too strong, too heavy. They are not evil by choice. That is their tragedy. By Ishira Honda When the orders came, we were not, could not, dared not be, surprised. Humanity must be preserved at all costs, despite a decidedly checkered record since the biased jottings of Herodotus. That is the old line, safe to stand by, a leaf of litmus on which to write our strategies like old Sun Tzu. Monstrosity and terror have no place in our crumbling streets filled with graffiti and youth who are the heirs to our creations, or some smaller fiend in whom we fear to find too close a mirror. There just isn't enough space in this vast world for both our dreams. If only we could truly believe you to be content on some distant menagerie instead of plotting where to bury you beyond our sight. The Deep Ones, from Demonstra, by Brian Tawara. From the sea we come, from the sea we come, our mouths the inns of the world, the salt of the earth unwelcome at the tables and charts of explorers who expect commodity and pliant territory, kingdoms, not wisdom, blood, not heaven's children. We grow with uncertain immortality at the edge not made for man, bending, curving, humming cosmic, awake and alien. Our mass, a dark and foaming mask, a bed of enigma to certain eyes, one with the moon, one with the stars, one with the ash that whispers history. In the same breath as myth and gods, whose great backs yawn before us, as we change with a growing tongue, growling amid the dreamlands, we built one blade, one leaf, one golden wall at a time. Fragment of a Dream of Atlantean Yellows From Demonstra by Brian Tawara You are a mist for me, you thing of never's known. I weep your nameless name in my mind, your gaze a lightless inferno within a midnight hurricane. You are a mist for me, you, beneath your shadow crown, thoughtless as steam between decrepit cogs and wind. Trees make ready for autumn. This city, is that old burning Rome or Vientiane? Clouds are savaged within the darkness, streetlights always flashing to imagined jazz over concrete sidewalks, the smell of acid rain. You are a mist for me, you, oceanic, absent as a page in the book of the dead, an asylum made of rivers and paint, howling, crawling without destination or intent, a mouth of subatomic questions, fluid in its variations of impossibility no mere human eye can taint. Bruce Boston's collection Dark Roads, Selected Long Poems, 1971-2012, through 2012, placed second in the full-length collection category, Boston is the author of more than 50 books and chapbooks, including the novels The Gardener's Tale and Stained Glass Rain. His poetry has received the Bram Stoker Award, the Asimov's Readers Award, the Reisling Award, and the Science Fiction Poetry Association named him Grandmaster already in 1999. His fiction has received a Pushcart Prize and has twice been a finalist for the Bram Stoker Award for novel and short story. You can find him on the web at bruceboston.com. This rich collection of long poems drawn from the whole of Bruce Boston's career is a rewarding read. He really captures the reader in these varied poems. 
Their length has given Boston a bit more room to develop ideas and create moods, which he does with keen intellect and delicious language. I recorded several poems by Bruce Boston when I interviewed him for Amazing Stories last year, one of which is from this collection. Might I suggest you go there and listen to them? The link is in the show notes on my blog, divadianes.blogspot.com. She Was There For Him The Last Time is a poem Boston himself considers his best. Here is my best rendition. She Was There For Him The Last Time From Dark Roads by Bruce Boston Denouement Upon his throat, her gloved hands are white as powder. She was there for him the last time in the bombed-out city where the decimating trajectories left their scars upon the earth like sabers crossed and waiting. An angel of Thanatos and calculation, passing unharmed and vaguely saint-like or as the kindred of demons amidst the charred stench and chaos of the long night's devastation. She was there to demarcate atrocities for the universal adjudication of some cosmic tribunal. She had become a high priestess of means and standard deviations, a mistress of bell curves and statistical indifference, who could assimilate the heat death of the plenum and mine quadratic equations. Climax, a ghastly minuet, she takes her shape from the blood upon the sand. She was there for him when the world stuttered and was slowly grinding to a halt, when the handbills fluttered from the high windows to clutter the sidewalk with rainbow debris, their pleas for justice and dispensation lost in a lull of multiplicity and history's evasions. She saw martyrs and saviors stride upon the stage indignant and paltry, dialectic and dyspeptic. She was there for herself with no explanations to record every gesture and strike not a word. She was there when the pixels cast an entropic scatter across the screen, motionless in the distance, ideal for the moment, bearing a microphone like a staff and bearing a fractal radiance. She was there when lines of chevroned troops, veterans of war and indoctrination, efficient as the blades fixed to their barrels, herded victims at random like cattle down the narrow streets. She watched smoke unfurl from the charnel chimneys and never capped a lens. Narration She is an enflorage of the world's flavors. She was there like running water and the boast of the wind, like the crescent of a bell clapping, the rush of the adder's strike or the hiss of brushed suede. She carried the hint of cataclysm and the blemished hush of age. She was there when he jousted incessantly with the knights of the day, furrowing the quick beneath his mail with her own brand of animal fear and excitation, as he crashed to the greens in colors so primary he would never know their like again. She was there for his storms and havens when the hard rains fell, drenched and pathetic, crouched by the fire, cradling a cup of mulled wine with long fingers, seemingly waif-like, until he heard the curses she muttered beneath her breath beyond the rasp of the mob's elation. When the plot shifted the tendons in its back and shook its head in derision, when the diminished crowd demanded its diversions, she was there as a conjurer's trick passed down through the ages. One colored box inside another until the smallest revealed an even smaller beetle, a scarab dark as emerald, that scurried across a table littered with scarves before its species could be classified or its temperament defined. Environs. With visceral exuberance, she sways to the clock's machinations. She was there in a time that changed swiftly in some ways, and in others was like a broken gear snagged back on the same fractured cog, over and again. A time that was science-fictional and malodorous with the past, she was alive in the days of his father, and rabid in the house of his sons, more steadfast than the city streets, 
She was old as the towers beneath and the pits that lie beyond. She was there in the waning of slow afternoons to call a halt to the seconds, to silence the limb creak and the leaf chatter, her shade descending like the head of an axe across his dappled speculations. And when she came to him from the mouth of the night, barefoot across the lawn and up the stairs, trailing twigs and bent flowers and wet bits of soil, a grave intoxication clinging to her gown. There were times when the landscape of her body, its meridians and pulses, its agoraphoric planes, the curve and list of thigh or shoulder, as she slipped from the covers, held the only paths he need travel. Another mystery to carry into sleep and dream emancipation. Proem A voice without a key, an enfilade of thorns, a sanguine option. She was there for him the first time amid the carnival lights that danced across the water, like incendiary insects that burned for the joy of it. There amid the freaks and the wrinkled jonglers, the painted clowns and acrobats, her beauty a special kind of horror, standing out against the common grotesqueries. She was there in his innocence, where she would ever reside, in his moments and lies, no more than a reflection of the banes he carried and the beliefs he defiled. Along the cut-back path that scaled the cliffside and skirted the edge of the forest proper, they climbed beyond the circus clatter while severed bars of song filtered in and out with distorted pitch, batting the white silence of the wind. At the summit of dawn and intent, she was leaning beside him into the high, wide blue as they considered taking flight. There, together, creatures born loft by sun and air, bridging the ocean in a single gasp. Exposition, in a dress by the horsemen stitched by the fates. She was there in his tomorrows intrinsically twined in the warp and weave of the tapestry that life in its idiot way unravels with no concern for maps we may have sketched or dreams we have cached with conscious precision. Her yang to his yin, a female totem towering above him, an eve that mordant science or amoral magics, or the mere dark wine of his imagination, or nothing but grisly fortune, had fissioned from his bones and hair and marrow. And like all of her kind, wraiths, succubi, glossy anima automatons, devouring goddess incarnates, nymphets, liliths, temple whores, divas, each woman he had known and none of the above, she had no soul to speak of. Light motif. When she crosses her thighs, cloth whispers coarsely. She was there in the belly of the ether and the fog's entrails, one of the spirits that daunted him, a party to the subliminal chorus that accompanied his days, and whose solos rang louder than the rest, whose siren arias embalmed his thoughts and echoed in the stage of his chest with grating insistence, a voice of smoke-filled incantation. She was there with hair the color of static, flesh compact as the primordial elem, eyes flaring in the mesmer yellow light of a subterranean grotto lit by sulfur torches that cast a menagerie of shadow beasts wild in their flickering dance upon the hard rock faces. There in air so dense with moisture that sound must learn to swim, where thought is warded by a host of vintage perversions and the rippling black petals of the pool remain impervious to the finest thieves. There in the drip of slow stalactite extension stretching stone through millennia, extracting stalagmites from the hearth of the earth spelunking the sheltered labyrinth of caves and causeways, the coral of her tongue barely showing between her teeth. There she was awaiting another taste. Unexplained Fevers is Janine Hall Gailey's third collection and came in third place among the full-length collections nominated. She recently served as the second poet laureate of Redmond, Washington. She is the author of four books of poetry, including this one, Becoming the Villainess, She Returns to the Floating World, and upcoming in the spring of 2015, The Robot Scientist's Daughter. 
Her work has been featured on NPR's The Writer's Almanac, Verse Daily, and has been included in the year's Best Horror, Volume 6, edited by Ellen Datlow. I reviewed Unexplained Fevers last year on Amazing Stories. It brings Snow White, Rapunzel, Sleeping Beauty, and others into the present day and or the real world, making them get MRIs, buy cars, and putting their images in glossy magazines. And it's usually not very happy or pleasant. The poems in this collection are often disturbing and dark. They help us consider how much of the dark side of life we are responsible for creating and then ignoring, or merely paying no heed. This is our fate. Is there anything we can do about it? So we go along for the ride. Janine Hall Gailey's characters feel real, like they could be us or someone we know. They speak with my North American voice. The emotional content is brought home by this combination of the real and the make-believe. I included five poems in audio in that review, but Janine asked me if I would present two others for this podcast. She Decides Not to Look Back from Unexplained Fevers by Janine Hall Gailey So, you've come all this way, colored your hair, and still the disguise doesn't stick. The way the snakeskin slithers up your side, you'd never know your bags and boots beg to tell another story. And mother, is it a good one. We started in a small town, pregnant. We started out on the road on our own. We left behind brothers and sisters that needed us. We wanted to see the city lights. We wanted to bring home a father, a lover, a new name. We grew tamer by lamplight. Tease your hair and grow talons, but your soft breath just escapes. Remember your hometown, the accent you lost, the school counselor who told you to give up and get married. Remember that childhood friend who burned himself to death? The one who fried his brain? The one who turned himself inside out? You knew you couldn't save. You have your six degrees of separation. You were lucky you ran when you did with just the change in your pocket. In which Jack and Jill decide whether to climb yet another hill. From Unexplained Fevers, by Janine Hall Gailey. When this new narrative began, it had nothing to do with moving trucks or hospital rooms. It started with clover and costumes, charming children and clamoring crowds, less claustrophobic. It all turned on a dime, the tipping point, and then the long trip down. We swore we would follow each other anywhere. But anywhere turned out to be a lot like Ohio, so we headed for the coast, the climate cool, and the clouds less dramatic. Somehow, we turned 30 without thunderous applause, our dreams dissipating into piles of paper. We stopped trying to perform pirouettes, preferring to keep our feet on the ground. We've sunk into the hard mud of a river valley, fingernails turning blue for lack of oxygen. Time to conjure some new magic. One more act for the play, where the pop-top lid reveals not snakes, but snapdragons, where the earth stops keeping count of the mornings and shakes us loose. Our backpacks loaded with crocus bulbs and rosemary, ready to set roots. So there you have the first, second, and third-placing full-length collections of the Elgin Award. Next time on Poetry Planet, we'll continue with the chapbook-length collections. As always, you can get detailed show notes from my blog, and the link to that can be found on starshipsofa.com. Until next time, keep it lyrical. This is Diane, signing out. There you go. That it, Diane. Woohoo! Happy Christmas. Thank you very much. We will look forward to part two of this Elgin Award showcase. Diane, thank, honestly, that's lovely. Thank you so much. We need a bit of bit of culture sometimes on the on the Starship Sofa. And Diane provides all that. Yes. Well, that is the show. 
367. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you've kind of, kind of you know, just made you think a little bit and kind of some great stories. And let's like, see with Diane, what can I say? Listen, if I don't see you before Christmas, have a fantastic one. Possibly I might have something there for next week, which actually is the 20, I think it's the 24th when we come out. Or maybe I'll just, I said last week I might skip a week. Well, you just, you carry on, don't you? So until then, I would just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1. This presentation has been... Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.